Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and welcome to our webinar, The Good Reasons and the Bad for Taking NFTs Seriously. I'm afraid I missed uh, Terra Nullius, reputed to be the first non-fungible token or NFT to be posted on the Ethereum blockchain back in August 2015. But like many of us, I did notice CryptoKitties uh, a couple of years later, chiefly because I admit because they seemed like a uh, digital version of the Tamagotchis that my children neglected to death uh, in the late 1990s. But if we were laughing at uh, NFTs back in 2017, we certainly aren't now. Chainalysis has tracked $44.2 billion worth of cryptocurrency being sent to the Ethereum smart contracts associated with NFTs last year. That's more than 400 times the $100 million which investors sent in 2020. According to nonfungible.com, NFT trading volume in 2021 was up 21,000% on the previous year. The leading NFT marketplace also found that as it happens in 2017 was valued at $1.5 billion in its last funding round and is now, to the dismay of many of its users, pondering an IPO, with commentators labelling it the next eBay. Yet earlier this week, the FT ran a story entitled, Is the NFT Market About to Collapse? It said the average price of an NFT had dropped by half since November. Trading volumes on OpenSea were down by 80%, and the acquisition by the Board 8 Yacht Club of CryptoPunks and MeBits was the beginning of the end of the world in which comic book characters sold for millions of dollars. So, are NFTs a genuine, durable innovation or just another speculative bubble created by the lords of easy money at the central banks, destined perhaps to go the way of the Tamagotchi fad? Or is a more nuanced analysis required? For example, do some NFTs matter more than others because their value rests on sound methodologies and indeed comprehensible methodologies? In other words, is it only the ones that matter least that are being found out now? clearing the way for a new asset class that can take us into a bold new metaversal future. To help us answer these questions, I'm joined by four experts in the field of NFTs. Jan Kettlers is Chief Marketing Officer at Venly, which provides blockchain projects with digital wallets to store assets and their investors with a peer-to-peer NFT marketplace. Shane Lightaller is a Senior Product Manager at Consensus, the Ethereum software company, where he's currently helping household names to launch NFTs on the programmable blockchain network. Paul Taylor is a banker and marketer and an NFT enthusiast and investor. We're particularly grateful to Paul for rising from his sick bed to be with us today. So thank you very much for that, Paul. Last but not least, uh, Bastian Wagner is a partner at Artsgain SA and an advisor to R3s and D3A Venture Capital Incubator for blockchain startups. He previously worked as a portfolio manager for institutional investment firms and multifamily offices in London for over 18 years. In addition to our panelists, we do of course also have you, our audience and all five of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout the webinar by using the Q&A or chat functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. Rest assured, I won't be saving those up uh, until the end of the discussion, but we'll answer them as we go along. So you can be an integral part of the discussion right from the beginning. I'd like to start the discussion by asking each of our panelists what it is that explains the massive surge in activity in NFTs last year, who's gained and who's lost from all that activity. Uh, clearly, weighted money is one factor. That Chainalysis report suggested $44.2 billion was invested in NFTs last year. That's a lot of money. Values, volumes all went up. But there's also, of course, an awful lot, as the FT indicated, awful lot of volatility 
at the level of both the individual NFTs and in the market as a whole. Now, most people I talk to about NFTs can see quite quickly what's in it for the issuers. Beeple's Oceanfront, a sort of painting of an oil rig, sold for $6 million in March last year. There's Crossroad, which is a 10-second video clip sold for $6.6 million. Pax the Merge, which consists of three white spheres, sold for $91.8 million. And CryptoPunk number 7523, a sort of Lego composite, sold for $11.75 million. That's what people notice about the NFT markets. They also ask what's in it for them as investors, or at least investors who are not proven money launderers. Now, Chainalysis tells us, and this is an important point, that most of the new money comes from retail investors, yet most of the profits seem to accrue to professional traders. You might say nothing new there, that's a classic financial market outcome. So I'd like to ask each of our panelists, are we looking at a bubble, a nuanced bubble in which some NFTs matter and are durable and some do not, or are we looking at a valuable experiment in finance, which will prove to be a durable innovation. Jan, could I ask you to give us your thoughts on that question first? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, for me, it's, it's a more nuanced bubble, um, a bit similar to what we saw with the internet in, in the early days of the internet, where everybody was speculating that the internet will solve all the problems that we had. Um, and now with NFTs, it's a little bit the same. It's like being overhyped maybe. Um, and then the first use case, some NFTs were art, but then, okay, art is a great use case for, for the creator to earn royalties whenever his or her pieces of art are being resold on a secondary market. But then we saw that like, everybody become an artist or creator and creating NFTs and selling NFTs and creating collections. So that was the start of really the hype and the profile pictures and the 10,000 NFT collections that we saw everywhere. Um, so that's why the, the volume skyrocketed at that time. And now we see way more like good use cases of NFTs. NFTs with great utility, NFTs being used in games, uh, NFTs with a real cultural aspect of it, NFTs that that are identities for a community. And all of this is definitely here to stay. And, and I'm expecting that NFTs, uh, the volume will pick up again and will replace a lot of digital contracts that we know in the, in the real world. So for me, it's, it's, it's definitely not a bubble, but it's it has been overhyped maybe in the, in, the, in the last year. Paul, perhaps I could ask you to address the same question. You've heard Jan talk there about um, its value to artists who get royalties every time a, a, a piece of their work changes hands, not, a, not something they enjoy presently. Um, he also talked about affiliation, about groups um, creating a sense of belonging and, and able to, to, <clears throat> to, to engage in commercial activities among themselves. What's your feeling? Is this a bubble, a nuanced bubble or a fantastically durable innovation which will see us into the future i think there's definitely durability um but i think there's probably a, a bit of a bubble aspect um going on um you know the, the sustainability of having anything up to a thousand two thousand different releases on a daily basis of ten thousand pfp projects i think has got to be questioned um i do think you will find that uh, quality will rise to the top over time um, but I think you also, as, as you rightly said, you also have to look at the reason why people are getting involved in these things. Why was that growth so large over the last 12 to 18 months? I think people were looking for different uh, classes of investment. Um, and I think people were looking to try to um, try things out, test things out and um, have a sense of belonging. 
within some of these projects as well, which maybe we can uh, go through as we get through the uh, the discussion today. So I'd be much more on the uh, on, on the angle of nuance bubble, but I do think there's some durability um, and I do think the cream will raise to the top uh, as we move forward, particularly when you start looking at things like the metaverse further down the line. Astrid, could I could I ask you to give us, you obviously through Artsgain uh, are connected with the, the, the arts world uh, who, have been quite enthusiastic issuers of of, uh, of NFTs for, for the very obvious reasons that at last they it's a way of actually being rewarded properly for their for their work. But could I also ask you to think a little bit about the, about one of the points I raised at the outset from that Chainalysis report about all the winnings going to the tight you know actually very tightly concentrated group of I think one in forty account for half of all the sales. Um, yeah. And the traders, you know, one in 20 is earning 80% of, of the profits here. So, you know, is this another case of professionals exploiting the naivety of, of retail investors? So I packed a lot into that. Give us a view on artists. Give us a view on professional versus retail. Yeah, I know, of course. I think let's start with the um, actual increase in, in value in this market. I think one important one important effect here is the wealth effect that was created through cryptocurrencies when we saw a massive one in Bitcoin, Ether, and other, and other native coins that obviously pushed the market higher. On the other hand, you're absolutely right. The market is, has become very bifocal because you see, you see when you go on, on a lot of these NFT platforms, most of them actually have either very limited amount of, of art, artifacts or artifacts with actually no value. There's a small concentration of projects that actually contribute 80 to 90% of the value. And that's where people are making money. Um, I mean, some people were pretty naive and I even said like, well, I'm just dropping, I'm just dropping, I'm minting some, some pictures, you know, and somebody will buy it, but that's not how it works. You know, um, you know, NFTs, especially digital art works through communities. So you need to have a community that supports the underlying project and goes out and talks about it, you know, and you have to think about how you monetize the community as well. And I think um, just to come back to the point of a bubble, I mean, a bubble by definition is that nobody talks about a bubble. But my feeling is that, you know, every conference I go to, every webinar I'm, I'm listening to, the question always comes, is it a bubble? So by definition, it's not a bubble. But I think there is a hype. There has been a hype. And as some panelists said, I think there's um, now um, a consolidation process going on. And in the longer run, I think what is really important is how the ecosystem expands. So going away from the pure native users towards people who are semi-native, maybe have cryptocurrencies, but haven't really interacted with the ecosystem. And then one step further, how do we get non-native people, especially from the supply side? So I'm talking about, for example, traditional artists, cultural institutions, into the digital area, and that's and that's that's more difficult than just purely, um, you know, developing a technology to make it easier to mint or just to to have a wallet or to get a wallet easier. It's all there's a lot of education involved, you know. There's a lot of like convincing involved that people move, bring their their communities onto the digital uh, area. Thank you, Master. And I'll come back to that, that point about the need for institutional issuers as well as institutional investors, on which um, I'm sure you have some thoughts and Paul will have thoughts about institutional investors. But Shane, perhaps your initial reaction to the classic question, which we have to ask here, you know, is, is it a bubble or is it not? What's durable about it? 
Yeah, yeah. On on the sort of the original question of what was the initiating factor behind the massive um, price and, and sales increases of NFTs um, last year, I'm not sure anyone can give a definitive answer to that. Um, if you could, you'd probably be dialing into this from a beach somewhere. But um, we know if we look back to 2020 crypto market, um, then to a year later in 2021 was clearly on the up. Um, so I suspect a great deal of NFT hype was driven um, by extension through the, the increase in crypto prices that helped. I mean, CryptoPunks themselves dropped in 2017. So they'd been there for years um, before that. Um, there were a large number of quite high profile massive sales, some of which you alluded to, Dominic, in your intro. We had the 69 million USD Christie's sale by Beeple, which stands um, head and shoulders above um, much of the other activity at the time. So there was a lot of hype. Um, and then continuing into late 2021, I think what we saw was it got easier significantly for um, people, organizations to launch their own projects. The tooling got better, the platforms got better. Um, you no longer needed to do so many things from scratch, right from smart contract development, um, art generation engines for 10K PFP projects, which we see so commonly now, it's all much easier. So I think we're in this burgeoning space where it's easy for people to get into. Loads of people are doing it. Therefore, you're seeing now as thousands, hundreds get released every day, um, there is a much greater degree of competition um, between projects. So is it a bubble? I'd expect so, yes, but maybe that's okay um, as long as the true innovation shines through. Um, and I think that is what we're seeing. The NFT projects that are successful these days tend to be the ones that build the best on um, uh, successful projects from the past. So what utility can new projects bring that um, previous projects didn't? How can they market um, most effectively to what is a very saturated market? So the cream is rising to the top. And I think that's okay. I think you made an interesting point about the link in terms of um, crypto prices as well. So something that I've witnessed in some of the projects that I'm in is that as the price of Ether goes up, um, the overall price of the worth of the assets goes down in terms of its Ether price. And it, and it seems like there's this natural swap out in terms of where people have got money to invest in terms of whether they're going to put that into core cryptocurrency or assets that are linked to cryptocurrency. So I think that might be an interesting thing to watch as we uh, as we move forward as well. Agree. Uh, could I, uh, and we'll come to this question of, of um, the interesting point that Shane has raised about what, what will be durable about this? What makes for, what will make one project durable or another non-durable? But before we do, can we just talk about that, this institutional point? Um, Bastian raised the question of, to mature this market needs institutional issuers. And I'd like to hear a bit more from him about that in a minute. But first, Paul, to you, do you think we can get institutional investors interested in this market and what will it take to, to, to bring them in? I, I think we can, and I think we've already started to see it. Um, I mean, you've already seen major brands like um, Adidas, Coke, Visa, MasterCard all move into the space. 
Um, I think MasterCard, particularly in terms of speeding up on-ramp of people being able to um, buy and transact in, in Ether and other currencies. Um, so I think you're seeing investment, certainly in the infrastructure, um, by a lot of large uh, companies and institutional investors. Um, and you've also started to um, see some um, things like ETFs. So you have to be careful with your NFTs and your ETFs, but your ETFs um, kind of coming in and starting to build out funds around some of these assets as well. Now, on that on that side of things, I'm less convinced. But, you know, I mean, as the market matures, um, you know, we have trackers for things like, uh, you know, common stock, you know, FTSE 100 trackers. You know, why not have some trackers that are out there for uh, for some of the kind of more premium assets that exist in this NFT space? So I think you are starting to see it. I think it will continue to pour in. I think it's great that you're seeing investment plow into uh, making this space easier um, and hopefully more secure as we move forward into the future as well. So that would be um, my thoughts around that. And that, that's something that we're seeing at consensus. Um, it's our modus operandi at the moment to be onboarding major brands and inst uh, institutional um, institutions um, into the space. Um, I'd say there's no large IP owning um, brand that I'm aware of that isn't at least having the conversation, should we be in this space? So um, it's only a matter, matter of time, I feel. And once the brand's um, alive, the investment um, follows. Yeah, and I think- Shane, seeing... we're, Shane, we're talking about, just to be clear, we're talking here about issuers, not about, uh, not about investors. Sure. Okay, so we can see why it makes sense. As I said at the outset, we can see why it makes sense for the issuers to be doing this. For the investors, it's much more challenging, I think given the volatility, the lack of liquidity, the relatively small size, and the markets do appear to be dependent upon retail money at the moment. I was just gonna I was just gonna add, I mean, you've got some big banks staffing up hugely on this. I mean, you've got City out there hiring a hundred people um, in this space. You've got Goldman's out there um, taking a look at what this means for their strategy. And, and they're doing that for a reason, right? They're doing that to make sure that they're still relevant, but they're also doing that because they've got their customers to asking them to do it. So I think all of this stuff mm -hmm. is very much in the in the wings right now. So, um, uh, Bastian, what uh, talk about institutional issuers? Uh, what would it take to get the National Gallery involved or um, the Hermitage yeah. Collection to start doing this? That's a good question. I mean, you know, the um, the institutions. Are generally, so institutional issuers are typically very conservative. You know, reputation is an important issue for them, and um, and also they they don't necessarily, you know, want to have the words uh, um, words like tokens, blockchain. You know, so it's it's a multifaceted um, problem or challenge to to take here, because to attract uh, traditional cultural institutions or and let's start it actually easier with like traditional artists, for example. It's not that they don't understand what it is, but there are multiple issues in regards to style drift. You know, they don't necessarily want to change their their um, their style, how they paint or what they create. On the other hand, it's like it, it's it's really nitty gritty as well. How do you move a community that is cultivated on Facebook, on Instagram, into the digital space? So meaning it is not just simply that an artist can go and mint an artwork on one of the platforms and suddenly all her followers will just open an, a MetaMask wallet, will wrap the ether by the, um, by the artwork. 
Yeah. So that's not happening. And we've seen this now also with a couple of other stars. And it's going to be the same in the music industry as well, where, you know, musicians, it's not just simply like you produce something, you mean something, and suddenly everybody's following. The process is much more nitty gritty because so you would have to have like the artists educated about, you know, about the digital um, infrastructure and then having her, for example, inviting her community that is off chain potentially in a Discord server. And in the Discord server, you would have to explain the community how to open a wallet, how to access, you know, like the different platforms. And you need people for this, you know, there needs to be people who are really handholding those guys and, and, and getting them into the, the native digital theater. Yeah? And now add to this something like a DAO, you know, let's say you would do a DAO and, you know, how do you explain this? So this is a whole process which, which, which needs to be figured out and needs to be curated in order for them to move the communities. And that's what I was saying at the beginning, you know, to increase, to extend the, the ecosystem. Yeah? And then the question is also to which blockchain do you go? You know, is it, is it, you know, are you working with a blockchain that's very strong in DeFi? Probably not. You want maybe a more specialized blockchain that has, that has already a very cultural offering, um, has potentially a good NFT platform as well, has a good team on the ground to help the artists or the community of artists to move into that area. And uh, on the cultural side, it's even more difficult because you need to have sort of an offering for them a one-stop goal, you know, to, to either create NFTs of their existing art, there's potentially the opportunity to tokenize some of their high-value art in order to raise, to raise money. Um, um, time will tell. I mean, it's very early in this, in this space, but... Um, I hope that, but I just hope when we're building up sort of the, the music theater, we're not doing the same mistakes as in the digital art. And otherwise we're gonna have so many NFT platform, music NFT platforms with like, you know, nobody using them. I think, I think you have seen groups do this very well. So if you take a look at Henny um, with what they've done with Hearst, um, and I think Henny are um, connected in some ways, to consensus actually. Um, but you know, they, they have um, built that entire ecosystem right? They've taken that entire community on a journey. You know, how do you get a MetaMask? They've, they've sped up the on-ramp so that you can use credit cards to buy the asset. They've got a great team of people within the Discord that are helping people out on a daily and minute-by-minute minute minute basis. And they've got some fantastic art backing through the Henny Group from people like Hearst and I'm sure Richter at some point in the future and Invader and all of the different rumours that are out there in terms of who's coming next. Yeah. Um, artists like JR. So, you know, there are some established artists like Hearst and sure he you know he likes to shake the tree a little bit in terms of an artist of course but you know you've got some people that have seen this become very successful for them and I think you'll see more of that kind of project and to me they're the kinds of things that will last um you know into the future as opposed to some of these kind of homegrown run uh, things that we've seen crop up yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and this is a good, this is a good question for you, uh, since both Paul and Bastian have brought it up. You know, getting involved in the the NFT market as an investor or indeed as an issuer is at the moment forbiddingly complex. You need to get this wallet, you need to have access to cryptocurrency, you need to get to a marketplace like like OpenSea. You then have to be willing to pay these gas fees. So there are barriers to entry to the to the uninitiated and people who own old masters probably aren't going to want to clear those those barriers at least immediately and certainly. As uh, Bastian was saying, the Conservative galleries won't want to do that. So um, Paul has touched on this, but how can those entry points for both sides of the market be made easier? 
Yeah, great question. Um, I completely agree with what Bastian was saying earlier on the end user friction. So today, the, um, the NFT space is mainly for crypto natives uh, or for the very much digital natives, maybe. Uh, but if you want to onboard the masses and if you want to have the, the whole communities of those artists or the communities of those games and brands to also be onboarded into Web3, we're going to need tools uh, for this. We're going to need solutions on, on, on the infrastructure level. Uh, we already have solutions of scalability on the, on the protocol and network level. So th this is great. But um, at Venly, our mission is really to bridge like Web2 to Web3 and, and make it as easy as possible for users to create a wallet. A good example is like a game that is a customer of ours is Sandbox. And if you log into the Sandbox, you can just link your account with social and it will create a wallet in the backend linked to your email address. Uh, so that is the type of thing that we want to see in the space. If you look at OpenSea, OpenSea is a great marketplace, but to be able to trade NFTs on OpenSea, you need to have your MetaMask wallet or another wallet. You need to have Ethereum on it. If you want to purchase NFTs on the Ethereum chain, you need to pay gas fees. Try to explain that to somebody that never traded on crypto to pay $100 of gas fees. Uh, that's impossible. Um, some games are on another chain. Let's say like Avagachi is a great blockchain game. It is on Polygon. Um, to be able to play that game, you need to do 10 steps, have two different currencies in your MetaMask to be able to play that game. So this is not how we're going to onboard mainstream users. Uh, but this is something that, that I would say the, the, the ecosystem and the industry is solving at a really fast pace. Um, already making it possible to purchase NFTs through credit card. Um, we have an app on Shopify that lets merchants sell NFTs the same way that it would sell products on, on Shopify, where their customers and, and purchasers could buy on the same way they buy uh, physical products on, on Shopify. Um, but, but we still have <laughs> some way to go. Um, and also we have a big job to do in education. And um, I'm super happy to, to hear here that some artists are educating. There are communities that are educating others, uh, but we need like a broader way of educating people in, in why Web3, why NFTs and, and why it's not a scam and how to be safe in that space. Now, we've been asked a question by, we're on the subject of infrastructure here, really, and how it can be made easier. And to some extent, we're, we're pointing in both directions. As Shane pointed out, that it's much easier. Anybody can issue an NFT these days, which is why you're getting lots of people doing it. On the other hand, it is quite difficult to get involved, particularly for the people you want to be involved. But so let, let's stay with infrastructure for a bit. Um, uh, Henry's question is this, um, NFTs use energy. Who bears the cost of the energy usage? And will rising energy costs hinder NFT growth at all. This is obviously a criticism which cryptocurrencies have, have run into. Um, is the NFT market um, <laughs> hot enough uh, to, to attract that sort of criticism? Now, is it a problem? What do you think, Shane? I think, I mean, the, the criticism um, is valid. Um, it applies not just to NFTs, but any um, transactions that are, that are taken on proof of work blockchains primarily. Um, so we have many uh, possible mitigations to that challenge. Um, one of the obvious ones that comes to mind is blockchains like Ethereum that are uh, moving towards proof of stake consensus mechanisms, which will be orders of magnitude, uh, which will reduce gas fees by orders of magnitude, 99% uh, cheaper transactions in the case of Ethereum. Um, and there are other proof of stake blockchains out there. That's just the most obvious example. Um, how does a proof of work blockchain that's likely to remain proof of work 
for the duration of its existence, like um, Bitcoin, for example? How do they mitigate that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, a, great, a great analogy somebody um, used with me a little while ago, and they were like, can you imagine going into a sandwich shop, buying a sandwich of three pounds and being told that your fee for using your credit card is 100 quid, right? I mean, it just, you know, any normal sane human being would not accept that. Whereas you've got this situation with NFTs where people are apparently quite happy to go out and buy a piece of artwork for $50, but pay 100, 200, 300 in gas. And, and I do think this is one of the things that will block wide scale um, adoption. So I think it's great that people are working on it. Um, there are side chains that I think um, are less expensive. I don't know what their energy usage uh, is. You've got things like Palm, you've got Polygon, which are all less. Um, but um, but yeah, it has to be fixed because you know, no, you know the everyday human being out there is just not going to accept those sorts of fees. I failed also to mention um, Ethereum Layer Two networks. So got Stark, um, Starkware, zk Sync um, as being two examples. Level two transactions, layer two transactions, much cheaper than layer one. So that's another approach that blockchains are using. And, and Palm, yeah. is, Palm is layer two, isn't it? Yes. As an example, yeah. Clearly, now, Shane, Shane, we, we've, Shane, we have been waiting quite a long time for, for the new Ethereum to get the, the gas fees down. It's created space for these other blockchain protocols to enter the space. The thing about NFTs, they are very dependent upon, uh, upon Ethereum at the moment. We've got Solana and Avalanche and others saying that they can, even Binance is in here somewhere, saying that they can um, uh, challenge Ethereum on, a, on competitive grounds. Do you, I mean, is, is competition between blockchain protocols going to be actually helpful to the, to the growth of this, this market? I think the prevalent view at the moment is that we're moving towards a, um, an ecosystem of, of many blockchains, not one monolithic chain to rule them all. Mm -hmm. So um, in some cases, I, I guess that there is competition, but um, I don't do see... We, do we risk the, the, the problem, which I think Bastian raised, of, of your getting silos building up and that so people can't trade on Solana and sell on Ethereum and vice versa? He was talking particularly about, about asset class silos, I suppose, one for music, one for art, I don't know, one for literature and so on. Do you think that's a, a risk? I do, but this is um, a development challenge. Um, if we can address multi-chain, cross-chain uh, bridges. Yeah. Then... We could we could have a whole webinar on that subject, couldn't we? Correct. So yeah. it's... <laughs> yeah, there are yeah, bridges. Into, into... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah I just, just wanted to... Yeah, I just wanted to add there. We already have many bridges that makes that possible. We have chains that are EVM compatible, which makes it a little bit easier for, for developers to uh, to interoperate between the, the different networks. And then we have tools like the Vendi Marketplace is blockchain agnostic. So you can have a marketplace where you can sell NFTs uh, on the different chains and just sell them to for a stable coin that you top up on the marketplace. So that's what we are doing. And, and, and this is working fine. I think the... the on the question, if, if they're going to compete, yes, some the, the chains are definitely going to compete with each other and having as much projects as possible being built on their chain. But the main goal is to not have that question anymore in two or three years, like saying what chain is best. We want to make the blockchain layer invisible. So that's happening on the backend and the users, the end user and the project shouldn't even think or, or, or have to decide anymore on which blockchain am I, am I going to be building. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, as a, as a, as a consumer, 
I, I shouldn't care which rails this is going down. I mean, if I go into a shop again and I use my credit card, I don't really care whether it's Visa or MasterCard, to be frank. Because, um, <clears throat> you know, as long as I get what I want, it doesn't really matter to me. I think that the important thing will be, from a CSR or ESG perspective, is that is that ethical? Um, so coming back to your energy consumption point. Um, but, but beyond that, I mean, you know, a consumer shouldn't need to worry about which side chain they're on. Um, you know, so at some point, I guess the devs need to uh, need to fix that. Mm. I think also, just to, Dominic, yeah. let me just, um, just yeah. say also sure enough, yeah. because um, I think it's really interesting when we talk about competition in in the uh, decentralized ledger uh, ecosystem. Because one problem we face is like the sort of sustainable defensibility of these projects. Yeah. I call it like so unforkable characteristics because you can copy and paste a lot of projects very quickly. Yeah. And you see that sometimes something's like a great example about rarity tool websites, you know, and suddenly you had like four or five because there was no like business, there was no sort of like how they could defend their business model. And that's again where the community comes in. Yeah. So it's important to think about which blockchain fits my needs as an, as an issuer you know, or as a, as a use case best. Um, and, and that's where we're probably going to go. We're going to have some specialized blockchains, you know, and then we have sort of like sort of the, the, the ones that are more generalist. But clearly, there are now thousands of them out there. And <clears throat> one, one issue is here because there are no barriers to entry, especially on the capital side. There's so much capital flowing in this area that, you know, you see seed rounds of like 5, 10, 15 million. Uh, in the market, and and so, and typically in traditional in traditional markets, you know, capital is one of the biggest barriers to entry. So I think we're going to see in the future some consolidation here. Some some players need to leave the market potentially, and it's going to be much more focused. And then it comes back to what Jan said on interoperability. You know that we have use cases built on it. We're using multiple chains. You know, have then, you know, which really the utility nature of of the layer one or layer two really gets into the background and you're really focusing on the front end and user experience and user interaction. Okay, well, I'd like to come back to, in a minute, to, to, the, to the nub of the issue about NFTs, which is where their value comes from. But just before I do, before we leave this subject of, of infrastructure and institutional involvement, um, one of the things that, that might reassure NFT issuers, and you might have a view on this, Bastian, is that, is that um, it enables them to retain the the intellectual property rights, even the copyright in in the works which they are uh, turning into to NFTs, and at the same time you've got this group of um, of commission based marketplaces. OpenSea is the best known one, um, who are doing good business, but not necessarily um, looking to protect the property rights and, and privacy of the property rights of the issuers and, and the privacy of the, the investors. They're just running a marketplace. So I was very interested to see that. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange, um, which has minted some NFTs of its own, um, had filed for a trademark to allow it, you know, to provide a, an NFT marketplace. In other words, maybe traditional stock exchanges are starting to look at this space. And if you were an institutional issuer or indeed an institutional investor, you probably would find the involvement of, of the New York Stock Exchange reassuring, uh, would you not, um, Bastian? Do you, that, that, do you think entry of London Stock Exchange, New York Stock Exchange, Euronext, Deutsche Börse could suddenly make this market take off. Yeah, I guess I guess it's a process. Um, we see institutional players coming in. Uh, also, 
um, uh, from the uh, from the from the museum side or so. But it's it's very early days, and I think there's again the question of reputation, as you rightly said. You know, there are a lot of questions about IP rights. There's a lot about like how we can protect so that it doesn't just get copy and pasted. Um, who actually owns what in an NFT? That's not 100% clear, and it really depends on the individual. Um, uh, on the individual platform and their TNC, so their terms and conditions, for example, um, it's still a bit of a gray area. Um, and I think you, as, an, as a user, you either trust that everything goes well, um, or you will be like, oh, people will be just a little bit more conservative. I think where NFTs also come in or blockchain uh, will, will have a material effect is a provenance analysis. So provenance for artworks, that's going to be something pretty big because historically um, having provenance of artworks, of real artworks, for example, you know, you have a lot of letters from galleries or from owners, you know, and, and they certify that, that the artwork is, 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 um, is real. But now we have different startups who are actually working on the idea of creating like provenance on the blockchain. So your artwork is registered on the blockchain. It's immutable, it's secure, which will give future investors much more comfort in the, in, in the underlying um, artwork that it is um, actually um, not forked. Yeah. Now, Jan, Bastian said a minute or two ago that uh, in NFTs, it's not clear who owns what, which is a rather alarming statement about, about an, an investment. And as I said, it does seem issuers are able to retain the intellectual property rights, able to retain the copyright of what they should. And I can see why they want to do that. But what exactly is the investor owning? What type of investment is this? Um, yeah, you, you have a new standard for this. Um, I'm saying new, but it exists for, for a couple of months already. Um, it's like the CC0 standard. Um, and this is where the owner of the NFT has the intellectual property rights, but also the rights to commercialize the asset. Um, and there's been a big buzz around this with the, 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 um, the acquisition of the IP of the CryptoPunks and Amoebits by Yuga Labs. Yuga Labs is a company that created the Board Apes Yard Club. Um, and so they bought those IPs to give it back to the community. So this now is great. So as, as you could say, like let's say a McDonald's um, could buy a CryptoPunk and then that CryptoPunk, that, that's NFT, the code, but also the visual of, of the punk attached to the, to the smart contract that visual can be used for commercial purposes. So they could say, we, we do a punky meal and the punky meal can have the branding of that crypto punk and they can commercialize it, but it could also have like um, um, swag or t-shirts, uh, sweaters, whatever they want They want to create and merchandising. Uh, so they could do this, but there are other projects that that don't have those um, or doesn't give that don't give that IP right to the owner of the NFT. So this is uh, normally it's always stated uh, in the project descriptions or in the disclaimers, and then you're not able to use it commercially, or you could be able to use it commercially up to 100k a year. Um, but for some projects, like collectible projects, it makes sense to go CC zero. To give the rights to your owners because that's how crypto is built by communities and by sharing etc but for other projects like gaming projects it could make sense not to give it to uh, to the owners because it doesn't yeah doesn't make sense or they don't they wouldn't care for uh, for it um but i'm i'm super excited about this in the space because it's changed the mindset and the business models again uh giving the rights to the uh, to the uh, to the owner of the nft 
right? So the, the lesson is read the prospectus, as it were, to work out what you actually own as an investor. Now, to, to go to the, to the nub of the issue, which I introduced at the outset between the bubble, the nuanced bubble and the, and the durable innovation, um, I did think a bit about what the source of, of value of an NFT might be. And one of the sources of value, which both Bastian and, and Shane and indeed Paul brought up earlier in our conversation is that one thing that's driving value in this sector is it's kind of outlet for cryptocurrency. Paul pointed out there's a pretty clear correlation between money coming out of cryptocurrency and, and prices going up in uh, in NFTs and, and vice versa. We talked, um, uh, Jan and Paul mentioned this, about this community building, but for anything else, you get cross-selling opportunities out of that. Uh, what we haven't touched on are things like the nature of the asset itself. There is a difference between a board ape cartoon and a, and, and a Damien Hirst, um, but some of these things were not investable before, but turning them into NTS makes them investable, I suppose. They're unique, which clearly is a, is a driver of value. They're often rare. Um, you know, there are only 10,000 bored apes and there are only 8,888 pudgy penguins. And there are only 2,000 of the of the Damien Hearst, which Paul, I think you've invested in, in, in that one. Um, and not everything sells, as um, as somebody pointed out on this panel. So it, it's not like you can do anything and it, and it flies through the roof. Um, you get other benefits like there's proof of ownership um, because the blockchain enables you to track, you know, the provenance, if you like, uh, and the property rights the person has insofar as the uh, NFT allows you to have property rights. They're transferable. You can buy and sell them on these markets. Um, uh, there are ownership rights written into some of them. Uh, you know, you can vote on, on how the NFT evolves over time. So you do have that uh, shareholder style ownership. There are entitlements. In some of these NFTs, you get tickets to the next uh, concert from the rock band, you get tickets to the next game from the, the football team or the violin player or whatever it is. Um, and then, as, as Jan pointed out right at the outset, uh, the artists themselves are, are collecting royalties on these things. Um, so you've got this mix of things, including very unusual, previously uninvestable asset classes with entitlements attached to them, with voting rights attached to them, with this sense of affiliations. So there are real reasons to think that that this is not just a bunch of money launderers issuing squiggles to themselves, but actually there are real reasons why this market um, can take off and be and be um, and be durable. So, um, who wants to agree with me about this or disagree with me about this? Is is it a pull? Yeah, I'll, I'll take it up. Um, so, I think there was in in amongst the the very long list of reasons to own. Mm. You missed one, which was the um, the ability to get something airdropped to you as well. I think that's um, that's another one that we've seen. Um, the Hearst, which is on that wall, the print, um, oh, yes. resulted resulted in me getting that, uh, which is another print because obviously NFT. That's a dividend you got, right? Uh, kind of, yeah. So this thing is probably worth somewhere in the region of two to three thousand um, dollars, right. which cost me nothing, right? So there there is a concept of having um, sort of. Uh, things airdrop to you that, that can increase wealth, but also give you like an additional mm -hmm. asset. And a number of people do things like that. And then the, the other example I was going to uh, bring up is uh, an example of uh, JR, so French artist, again, in the Henny stable. Um, but um, he launched a project, uh, Greetings from Giza, back end of last year, um, really sat in the doldrums for quite some time in terms of there being any activity in the community or, or of the artist. Um, but then he's done two really cool things over the last month or two. Um, he did a 
in-person, uh, live and virtual um, show where we went around his exhibition. And as a holder, I got invited along to that. Money can't buy kind of thing. Uh, you know, you can see exactly what's going on, why he created the artwork he created and things like that, which is pretty cool. And he's just announced that um, holders um, are actually going to be able to participate in one of his mural um, projects, um, which will probably be in the UK. Um, and so, you know, a whole bunch, basically 4,700 or as many of them as are interested are going to gather somewhere in order to create a piece of physical artwork somewhere in the UK. Um, so, you know, that, it comes back to community, it comes back to community, it comes back to people doing things with each other. Um, it's a bit weird when you go along to one of these things. So I went along to an exhibition the other week, uh, probably where I caught COVID. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the thing I was asking uh, people on, on the Discord was, you know, how do I introduce myself? Do I introduce myself as Paul or as my kind of made up name in the Discord chat room? Um, and so, you know, all of these things start to bend your mind really when you start to meet people uh, within the space that you're just interacting with electronically um in in real life um so yeah you know just just to add, add to the conversation really uh, you know there, there's some concrete ways that i feel that i've got something out of, of being involved so i'd say um that for me there, there are two levels to this sort of inherent value notion of nfts um paul's given some really good examples just now of of notion of token utility so specific projects will give specific benefits to its community um, our own project um, that I work on here at Consensus, Oilabits distributes royalties to original owners um, for subsequent purchases of, of those NFTs. A really good example happened today. Board Ape Yacht Club distributed approximately 100k USD worth of their own token to every holder. So that's not ins insignificant. But underlying that is the inherent value of the technology itself of NFTs. And um, in my view, Bastian um, has said it, it's the providence that NFTs um, give you that direct connection to the artist. NFTs have solved, have essentially solved the problem of the challenge of digital scarcity. Um, and that is its unique quality as a new medium. So that will open um, a raft of use cases. We're, we've only just scratched the surface of the, the types of use cases that um, mm -hmm. this type of verifiable blockchain-based providence um, will allow. We're seeing a very um, small sliver of um, what NFTs um, can, the, the world, what, what can be opened up with NFTs. So um, mm -hmm. the, the value has yet to be discovered. Um, and as that value is discovered, that is where volatility in the market will come down. It will provide confidence to both um, individuals, speculators, and institutions that um, this is a field, this is a space uh, that they're comfortable entering into. Hmm. One area that I don't think has been explored yet is um, how to link uh, these NFT digital things with something physical. So whilst Hearst has done that in his test with the currency, um, you've not seen many people start to play around with uh, connecting these these digital artworks to physical real life things in, in in the real world, and I do think that might be something that comes further down the track. But Bastian, sorry, I think I interrupted. Yeah, Bastian, it seems like a no brainer for the Louvre to to, to sort of tokenize the the Mona Lisa, and yeah. you know, one of the the income they could pay people would be you know a cheap ticket to go and see the real thing. Yeah, it, it sounds, I mean, it sounds superficially great. And um, it's a whole sort of fractionalization of high, high value assets, but it really depends on your institution. Um, 
you know, we have to consider that some of, when we stay with the, artwork, the artworks, um, some of these artworks which are given to um, museums, for example, you know, they, they are obviously contracts as well. They can't be monetized. You know, they need to stay forever. They're for the public. I don't think it's like the big museums necessarily who would take advantage of it. It's, it's more like probably the medium-sized ones that also have a flow of stock. Because what does it mean if you, for example, buy a piece of an artwork and if it were fractionalized, yeah? Um, how do I ever realize value out of it? Or is it just purely utility that I have a emotional connection with the underlying artwork. Um, I don't know, there's, I think there's no clear answer at the moment. There are many people I know who are exploring that area and trying to figure out what to do. But I think just related to this, I believe fractionalization of NFTs could be also something very interesting, especially now where we see a lot of these NFTs being very pricey. Yeah? And, uh, or think about metaverse sort of assets become very expensive. So there is a way purely from a financial perspective, you know, maybe owning a fraction of an NFT and holding it purely for capital appreciation um, reasons. Um, again, this is early stage, but uh, there are questions about, you know, can you buy the whole thing? How do you also code in like royalties which are embedded in the actual NFT, are they also in the fractional, in the fractionals? Um, but anyhow, this is like something also to think about, you know, when we think about NFTs. And, yeah. and again, NFTs are not just art, you know, NFTs, I mean, ticketing is a great example, you know, think about how you can get rid of a black market if you had actually the tickets for a concert as an NFT, yeah? And think about also like, you know, traditional financial services, which relies on a lot of trust. If you can create a trustless environment, using NFTs, you know, that link ownership and, and point towards specific documentation that is available for a small group of people. You know, think about syndication, think about origination, bonds, loans, equities, you know. That's a huge market, yeah. But I, I don't want to go too far, no, sorry. Just, just before you go, very quickly, one question. I mean, the, the, the major auction houses, the likes of Sotheby's and Christie's, have got involved in this market. They're very happy to sell NFTs, like they're happy to sell old masters and... Um, do they, is there a role for them to play actually in starting to educate uh, their issuers and investors about this market? And are they living up to that possibility? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, I mean, the greater, you know, you ask yourself why, why does, for example, Sotheby or an auction house in general has a reason to exist? Because you could argue, why is it not everybody is selling, you know, like as a collector and so forth. I mean, first of all, they're creating efficiency. You know, they are like one institution, but more importantly, you trust them. You know, they have done the work on the art, you know, they educate you, they have ex experts who are producing nice videos, you know, they make sure the artwork is, is correct. So, so you're buying at an auction house because you trust them. Yeah. And that's that's important that, excuse me, <clears throat> that they have gone into the digital area because that gives a lot of confidence for people. I think if they hadn't gone, I think a lot of people, for example, in the art canon would just not take digital art series at all. So there is a, a sort of a halo effect and, and a network effect that these guys have taken part of the, of the market. And to be fair, these large auction houses, they're, they're doing their part. Um, they're, they're one of the most high profile um, methods by which people hear about NFTs. When these large auctions sell, they're in the news. So um, the auction houses are leaders um, in educating the public 
uh, by default. Yeah. So yeah. they should be credited for that. Yeah. Now we're into our last 10 minutes. So um, just so you know where we've got to. A very interesting question here asked by Jonathan uh, uh, Zur. He says, um, considering the SEC's definition of a security, how do you expect regulators to treat the NFT market, especially as NFTs offering staking or some other form of uh, reflection or dividend? Now, I, there is a sense in which sometimes you, I think that NFT issuers seem to be uh, rather like cryptocurrency issuers seem to be trying to avoid NFTs being categorized as securities or indeed as funds, because that brings all sorts of regulated responsibilities um, with it. But I, I'm conflicted about this. I wonder whether, in fact, if they just went for regulation, it would actually help the market grow, would start to bring institutional issuers and institutional money uh, into the marketplace, or whether they're right to try and keep this new asset class away from being overregulated out of, out of existence. I'm, I'm not sure which of those would be most helpful to the growth of the market. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I have a technical answer to it, but I, I think um, I, I'm with you, I'm conflicted. Um, I think there's an awful lot of people that are involved in these spaces because they like the idea that it's not regulated, but then there's an awful lot of concern out there in terms of the fact that it's not regulated, therefore it brings risk. Um, I, I, I get the sense that as the market matures, um, regulation will probably follow. Um, but at the moment, I think you'll see a, a large outflow of people um, interested in, in getting in, involved in this space. Probably the kind of crypto native people um, would, would just kind of leave it aside and, and probably not bother. Mm -hmm. Well, Jenny Knott has added, uh, how do you address collective investment scheme rules? Should we just embrace regulation? Will it, will it add any value? Jan, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm inclined to think that to some extent, and, and this is certainly true of the security token market, where the, the non-regulation of, of cryptocurrency, and now it seems of, of NFTs, has actually probably hampered the growth of that marketplace partly for ignorance, you know, natural institutional ignorance, people can't tell the difference between a security token and a, and a cryptocurrency when, when they start out, but also thinking you know, it gives a kind of Wild West reputation to something which maybe is, 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 un, is undeserved. But Jenny and, and Jonathan's point is a very powerful one. Would regulation, turning these NFTs into securities or turning these NFTs into regulated securities and regulated funds, would that actually help the market to grow? What do you think, Jan? I have... I think I have the same idea as, as, as Paul on this. Um, I don't know, like today the market is growing so fast because it's not regulated and it also attracts a lot of money, um, which is happy that, that the things are not regulated yet. I think if we're going to see regulation, then we're going to stop or we're going to slow down the speed of, of, of evolution and of innovation um, in this market. And on the other side, yeah, on the value market, like our own marketplace, we we are fully regulated and we try to do everything like in a fully regulatory way, but sometimes the rules are so difficult and do we need to do KYC and, uh, and AML for everybody trading on a marketplace? Um, on a marketplace, you, you could you could say yes, but then within a game or a mini game where you have NFTs in the game and tokens in a game, do you need to file every transaction that you do in a game? This is complete nonsense if, if you expect um, gamers to do so just because it's a digital asset and it's on a blockchain. So those regulatory issues um, are, in my opinion, are still going to be there for the coming months, maybe years. And if everything should, would be regulated, then I think that's the crypto native community that is so keen on decentralization are going to find new ways to uh, to do new stuff that that won't be seen as securities mm -hmm. um, or dividends. Do you think issuers are deliberately trying to avoid being classified as securities or funds? 
you know, because when I, when I look at some of the things we've talked about on this on this webinar this afternoon, would clearly class would clearly qualify them as securities under the Howey test in the United States, for example. Do you think the issuers are trying to avoid that outcome deliberately, and are they wise to do so? Yeah, I think every issuer of an NFT. Um... Um, collection or a, a project will all, always look at the way to pay the, the, the least taxes as possible. Um, mm -hmm. So they will always look for the best solutions. Um, and if the regulatory framework is so unclear, then it's pretty easy to uh, to, to to get around it. Um, from experience that we have with, with companies that we work with or that we even um, consult on, on their tokenomics and their businesses, we always say that if you do a token sale, uh, just keep uh, the, a percentage on the side for at least for your VAT uh, taxes. Uh, so that if it's going to be regulated, et cetera, that you at least have that money and that you show that you're willing to pay that money. Uh, but no one knows what percentage of taxes that you need to to, to pay to the governments on uh, on the NFTs, uh, especially not on, on staking income um, from staking NFTs. So, yeah, that's a, a, a tough nut to crack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think maybe to add here, I'm, I'm taking a bit of an ironic view here. I mean, having worked in a regulated industry for, for a long time and still, um, you know, if the SCA, the, the, the SCA, sorry, the FCA as well, would like to uh, condemn them as token uh, securities, they will. You know, there is, there's a lot of discussion in the industry about can we put like, can we classify them as utility tokens, you know, to get around a Howey test and whatever. But in reality, I mean, when you look at the history, if the government wants to, you know, declare them as securities, they will. Yeah, and you can maybe go against them, but it's going to be very costly. I mean, having a legal fight with the SEC and there's no industry body yet that has enough money really to, to fight that. And secondly, I think also regulation is quite interesting here and it, and it bridges a little bit into also like, um, so central banks, digital currencies, because regulation is a double-edged sword for the government. Because as soon as they would start regulating the digital industry, they would also tell everybody now it's legitimate, yeah? Now it's safe, yeah? The same, and, and so you would see more adoption coming and people say like, oh, no, it's safe. Oh, the FCA said it's good. You know, the government says it's not a gray area anymore. The moment they can say it's a gray area, be careful, you know, it's full of risk, full of, uh, you know, speculators and so forth. And the same with, with digital currencies, so government issued digital currencies because you bring people into the digital area and then they're starting to experiment. So if you believe that, for example, you know, people will move away from traditional currencies, even if they're digital, more into Bitcoin, then that has a significant risk. So, and I think that's what the regulator at the moment tries to figure out, how to efficiently, you know, regulate it and also not to hamper innovation. Well, we'll have to have a whole webinar on, on regulation and indeed the tax treatment of these things. I was amused to see that the HMRC had seized a bunch of NFTs as part of a a tax fraud <laughs> investigation. I'd always hoped yeah. NFTs were like were like cases of wine. They were not uh, not uh, charged at capital gains tax. <laughs> but, anyway. but, but practically, how can they do that? I mean, it's sat in your MetaMask wallet. What do they do? They like put the thumb screws on you and ask for your seed. No, they they worked they worked with a um with a with a firm to help them with that. I can't remember which one it was. One of the one of the crypto custodians helped them with that. Um, right. I'll look it up and send it to you. We're, we're almost, our time is almost up, but I'd just like to ask each of you before we go and let the audience go, just where we think this market is going. I'm a rather romantic person. I think that actually NFTs are a kind of 
uh, 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 I like cryptocurrency, like security tokens, are, are pioneering this new form of, of capitalism uh, in which large corporations cease to be as large and as powerful as they are. And, uh, and we haven't even talked about the links to the metaverse and the DeFi. We'll have to do that next time as well. We did touch on it, but it's a very big subject on its own. But you, I can foresee a, 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 a highly decentralized form of, of capitalism in which genuinely user-owned entities uh, dominate life and, and things are bought and sold through you know, affiliated networks rather than um, through the, the methods which we see large corporations deploying today. But anyway, I'd like to ask each of you, maybe I'll start um, with, with you, Jan, on this. Um, let's say we, we end up with much more user-friendly on-ramps to the, to the NFT market. Um, is that compatible? And we've talked about NYSE and others moving into this space. Is, is the vision of a decentralized NFT market durable? Can the, the, the sort of foundation um, myths of, of the NFT market survive growth and institutionalization and becoming accessible for more and different types of issuers and investors will the dream die as the market grows no it won't yeah it's definitely uh scalable and, and sustainable and will definitely exist in the future and we're going to see decentralized marketplaces but also centralized marketplaces and and um i think that the whole idea of wanting to have everything as decentralized as possible is that's probably going to die a little bit because we are a fan of having custodians and, and marketplaces where there's a chat function where you can get help. Um, and then on the NFTs, there's definitely going to be a lot more NFT projects and people are going to collect NFTs that have an impact on a community level, have an impact on a cultural level um, and have utility um, with giving access to them or, or being part of their identity. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super positive on the future on NFTs. And then um, without going into detail, but then the NFTs and metaverses can be great in, uh, in, in the coming months. And uh, NFTs and DAOs is also like the decentralized autonomous organizations around NFTs. That's going to be uh, something great, a great innovation as well that we're going to see soon. Okay. Thank you, Jan. Um, Bastian, what's, what's your view very briefly? Because we've run over time now. Yeah, um, where are we just, going? Well, I think it's it's there's definitely um, a progression. It's not going to be linear, so we're going to see more volatility and more products. Again, we are very early in the stage. We don't know what's going to what sort of projects are going to come out, and there's a lot of, as I said, a lot of money flowing in the industry, which promotes obviously a lot of new startups, new ideas. Oh. Yeah, continued investment, as Bastian said. Um, I think it's got longevity. I think in five, 10 years, we'll look back and go, wow, look at what we were talking about back then and where it's gone and you know how big it's become um, in society. And the other thing that I would add is that I think the people that will be super interested in things like Metaverse and how NFTs play in Metaverse are probably at least 20 years younger than most of us. Um, so, you know, if you look at what's happening in gaming with things like Fortnite um, and, you know, the way that they're bringing sort of um, different uh, stars and different kind of creators and things into environments in their own metaverse, I think you can just predict that forward to see how it's going to uh, work out. Uh, a last word from you, Shane. Yeah, 100% confident that we'll still be here in 10 years' time. You've got many very talented and driven organizations and individuals working very hard on abstracting away all of the current um, challenges that the blockchain represents. In 10 years' time, I'm pretty confident that um, almost everybody on this planet will be interacting with NFTs invisibly. They'll be a second nature um, 
to everyone as the internet is to us now. Sadly, that's, uh, that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Jan Ketlers from Benley, Shane Leichtaler from Consensus, Paul Taylor uh, and Bastian Wagner. And thank you also to, to you, our audience, uh, for your questions and your comments. I hope you found uh, the discussion interesting and useful. Mm -hmm.